0: Joining me for the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. I turned 57 this summer, and somehow that number tipped me over from mid 50s to late 50s and got me thinking about age and aging. And so when I accidentally stumbled upon a title called The Inner Work of Age Shifting from Role to Soul by a deep psychology therapist, um, a person who does what's called shadow work, um, a woman named Connie Zweig, I actually got interested. I'd never been interested in age and aging before. There was this this, uh, rabbi that I had sort of been interested in his work and following his spiritual uh, teachings. But his only book was called From Aging to Saging. And when I first saw that in my 30s, I was like, who cares about getting older? (laughs) But hell, I care now. So I reached out, I read the book, reached out to Dr. Zweig, and we had a beautiful conversation that I think helped me a great deal. And if you are old or getting old or looking at the horizon at old or planning to get old, um, I think this is going to be a really useful conversation for you as well. So without further ado.
1: Okay. Um, I was trained as a depth psychologist and went into clinical practice in the 90s. Um, That means, depth psychology means orientation to the unconscious, rather than a lot of the cognitive, behavioral, and neurobiological work that we see in psychology today. Um, And so it's kind of in the tradition of Freud and Jung. And the more that I studied and explored and worked with people, the more I realized how much the unconscious was shaping choices feelings and behaviors in everybody and i began to um jung's name for the personal unconscious was the shadow so uh the first book that i um created about the shadow was an anthology called meeting the shadow the hidden power of the dark side of human nature and it turned out it struck a chord it was a big hit and um it kind of encouraged me to keep going with my research. And so the next book was called Romancing the Shadow. I hmm. wrote that with a colleague, and it's a, it provides a method for how to make the unconscious conscious in our everyday lives. Whether we're dealing with an addiction or depression or a repetitive fight with a partner, the many, many ways that, that the shadow erupts in our lives, and we developed a method for instead of denying it, which is the first response, and repressing it again back into the unconscious, we um, created a way for people to cultivate a conscious relationship with a particular aspect of the shadow. We call it a shadow character, and as a result, have more choice not be so run by our unconscious, but have more choice in our um, in our feelings and thoughts and actions. And then um, in between, I wrote a book called The Holy Longing, which is about our um, spiritual yearning. And I, I just now finished a revised edition of that, which will be out next May, called Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. And that's about how we get caught up in our own shadow material and our teachers or clergy's shadow material um, when we get lost in projections, when we attribute greatness to others rather than really owning it for ourselves. So um, that kind of moves the Me Too movement into the spiritual arena and explores what's happening with all of that today. And then, um, most recently, in my late 60s, I was thinking about retiring and I started to notice a lot of uncomfortable feelings coming up, disorientation, and I was surprised because I've been doing psychological and spiritual work for so many decades, and yet there it was. And the question came up, who am I if I'm not Dr. Connie, the shadow Mm -hmm. expert? And as I interviewed more and more people, I realized that they were all like me, having a late life identity crisis, not a midlife crisis where people tend to try to solve it by changing careers or spouses or geography, but a late life identity crisis, 60s and 70s, 50s could be 50s, 60s, 70s. And so I looked for books about it and there wasn't anything. there's many hundreds of books about aging, but there was nothing about meeting the shadows of age, the unconscious ways in which we deny our age, we deny retirement, we are unaware of our associations um, with these things. And therefore, you know, we're missing out on becoming elders and aging consciously. And so I just, realized that I had a call, another book to write, even though I hadn't planned on it. And so the inner work of age um, has reached so many people. You know, there are 10,000 people turning 65 every day now. Mm. And many of them feel lost and isolated and uh, disoriented and lose meaning when they lose work. So that's who the book is for. And uh, it's been very exciting to be able to teach on Zoom and actually meet my readers and hear their experiences. And um, we've been forming book clubs. I call them Wisdom Circles. There are about 50 of them now with 10 people each. They're reading the book together. And they're doing the practices together because the book is full of psychological and spiritual practices. It's not just theory. I want you to experience this as you're going through the book. So it's been really exciting and gratifying to um, find this response to the groups. They're free, they're online. Um, I'm just connecting people and they're forming intimate friendships. It's really been beautiful. So that's what's happening with the book.
0: So, yes, yeah, so, so I think it's be useful um, to ground the discussion of the book in the idea of shadow, which has been, you know, your work for the last 30 years or so. Um, the, the best definition I've, or visualization I've ever seen, um, you shared Robert Bly's image of this bag that you carry of everything that you want to throw out about yourself, essentially. And you carry it around with you. And it and it causes mischief, right? It sabotages you. Um, what was what was your first introduction to this idea of the shadow? And like, how what what made it resonate? Like, oh, oh yeah, this is this is real. Because you write in the book about wanting to do you know psychological work with people and being kind of disgusted or put off by the neurophysiological on one hand and the cognitive behavioral cognitive quick fix, on the other hand, what, what, what in you, in your past and in, in your experience made you sort of meet the shadow work and say, oh, yes?
1: Well, I'm not disgusted. I wouldn't say that because I've studied neuroscience quite extensively. And I feel that an understanding of the brain has an important part in helping people. If we don't understand why people default to the same brain circuits all the time, we're missing a piece of the framework. But that also misses soul. It misses the essence of who we are. Because we are not our brains, and we are not our bodies. So the subtitle of the book, Shifting from Role to Soul, is about Letting go of our roles so that we can do contemplative practices and have a deeper identity, a deeper experience of our essential identity, whether we call it soul or spirit or Buddha nature or Christ nature or the divine, it doesn't matter to me what we call it. So that is not, so I would say neuroscience is kind of included in my world, but that is not included in that world. Mm. And um, so for me, I was in Jungian analysis in the 80s and began to encounter my shadow in my dreams. And that's how it unfolded for me. You know, other people meet their shadows in relationships where they struggle to overcome um, power dynamics or financial struggles with each other, repeating the same fights about money or repeating the same fights about who makes decisions or about sex. So power, sex, and money are three really big shadow issues that are in some relationships forbidden or unacceptable or carry a certain amount of charge so you can't really work them through. So to complete what you were saying about Robert Bly, he says that the first half of our lives we're stuffing material into the bag behind us, into the blind spot where we can't see it. And then we spend the second half trying to get it out again, trying to uncover, let's say, we were forbidden to be sad as children. I remember someone told me my father felt like a failure if I was sad, so I always had to have a happy face. Mm. So the range of feeling was really um, cut short for her. And so she comes into midlife and she gets depressed. All that repressed grief and sorrow begins to surface, and she doesn't have any idea why. But she comes to me and she wants to understand what it's about. Or um, someone is struggling with food. She, like I had a woman who has a shadow character called the foodie.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: every time she couldn't express herself to her boyfriend, she would eat ice cream. And she would do it so often that she was gaining weight and she didn't know why she was doing that. So there's a shadow character there. Um, that she learned from her mother's behavior because her mother couldn't express herself to the father. And so she would eat. And so my client was doing the same thing. And when we started to work with the foodie, she began to be able to express her needs to her boyfriend. And the binging behavior began to slow down. So there, anything at all can go into the shadow. Anything. Our talent can go into the shadow. So if you grow up in a family that doesn't value an innate gift, let's say an artistic gift, you have to go to school and be an academic and get straight A's and forget about your drawing and painting. That gift goes into the shadow, and many people, midlife and beyond, feel called to begin to uncover what is in the shadow, what is in their unlived life that they could express now. So my um, literary agent, who sold most of my books, retired from her business and started painting full-time, and she said she's never been happier. Or my friend, uh, Phil, who's been working as an author all of his life, has never been able to afford to write the novel that he's dreamed about for 50 years. And he said to me, uh, actually I said to him, if you don't write this novel will you die with regret? Mm. And he said, "Okay, I got it. I got to do it now." He's in his 70s, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that so those kind of dreams and aspirations and talents can be in the shadow. It's not all negative.
0: Mhm. So, so- one, one of the first things that really slapped me about the book is we, you begin by talking about um, our inner ageists, right? The parts of ourselves that have negative uh, perspectives on age, on old people, on getting old. So all of a sudden, so like, you know, I'm dealing with my shadow pretty well, I think. <laughs> Right. I'm not, of course. Uh, it's <laughs> I can see all the ways in which, you know, the, the, the ways I adapted as a child to circumstances are still like really playing out in, in lots of ways. But I'm like, OK, I'm managing those. And now all of a sudden I, I'm 57 and I'm I, I'm involved in a sports league where there's lots of younger people. And I, I used to be fast and I'm not fast anymore. And I used to Get, jump up on Sunday morning after playing all day on Saturday with nary a complaint and now it takes me 3 days to get my energy back and you know you have you have a, a phrase a wonderful yiddish phrase in the book that, that has been like part of my vernacular of my whole life altacocker right this the yeah, and literally old shitter right? and realizing like oh if i don't if i don't take care of this this gun that i'm pointing at old people it's now, it's now pointing at me.
1: That's exactly right. And, you know, that Yiddish phrase is pejorative. It's full of bias. It's not, it's not complimentary. It's not flattering. It's yeah. not respectful. Right? So, and I remember my dad using that a lot. So, we swim in a sea of ageism in our culture. Our culture doesn't revere elders, we don't have any rites of passage to become an elder. Right. Like some indigenous cultures do.
0: Right. In, in fact, the, I remember the day I got my I got my first AARP envelope. And I was like, you know, fuck y'all, like <laughs> you, you don't know me. Right. I'm, I'm not old. I was, right. I was incensed.
1: Right. OK, so that's your inner ageist. That's the part of you that has internalized the institutional ageism that's around you, ageism in the workplace, in the schools, in the healthcare system, in the media. If you if you look through this lens at films and television, you'll see it everywhere. So we, you know, through the lifespan, as children, we begin to internalize that—the comments, the gestures, the TV shows. I remember. Um, all in the family with Archie Bunker when I was growing up and the way that he treated his wife. So, you know, we internalize that. And then through the lifespan, as we age, we're carrying anxiety, shame, um, fear about how our bodies are changing, like your sports abilities, because we're taught that young is good and old is bad. Strong is good and weak is bad, right? Independent is good and dependent is bad. And as we move toward those other qualities, which we all do if we're lucky enough to grow old, then these unconscious feelings start to come up from the shadow. And what happens? Millions of people try to remain young. Hmm whether through surgery or through more activity or through more volunteering or through more exercise, the underlying intention is to reject aging and stay young. And so I saw so many people in my practice who were really feeling self-loathing, you know, as they went into their 60s and 70s. And yet they were still, they were competent, they were capable, they were um, generous. You know, they had so many great qualities. And as we worked together, they were able to begin to distill the wisdom that they had gained from their lives and do the inner work of age. One of the practices I teach is a life review. So as you review your life through all these different lenses that I suggest, you begin to see that the story that you've lived is rich and full of meaning and synchronicity and, you know, mentors. For me, I went through my life review and I saw the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell's story. Every single step of it was in my life story. And that was amazing to me. So there, And there are a lot of different practices like that that offer us the opportunity to move from senior to elder. So, you know, you're a senior, you get your Medicare card, your ARP membership, but that's not an elder. An elder is a stage, not an age. So it's developmental. Someone at 55 who's really self-aware, um, lives in a lot of gratitude, not bitterness, is open-minded, you know, is serving the common good, That person and is aware of mortality, that person is an elder at 55. But at 85, somebody could be really rigid and close-minded and regretful and bitter. That's not an elder. So it's a developmental process. It's a brand new stage of life, Howie. It's never happened in the history of humanity, this longevity. Mm. (laughs) This new longevity, you know, people in their 90s and 100s who are um, highly capable and healthy, it's never happened before. So there are tremendous opportunities for later life. And if we deny our age, we're going to miss out on them. If we feel ashamed, we're going to miss out on them, and so meeting the shadows of age is part is it's self interest because it enables us to really grab the opportunities that are available today.
0: Yeah, Well it's also subversive. I think one mm-hmm. uh, one of the people you quote in the book is Bill Plotkin, who's written extensively about you know life cycle and. How few people ever become adults, let alone elders. Yes. Um, and he, you know, he says that we, we we live in a a culture that's essentially pathologically adolescent. Yes. Right. Right. And so to, be, to to reject that, like you taught, you say, like our workaholic, materialistic culture can sabotage our development because it doesn't give us time to slow down and look inward. And now all of a sudden, like all this stuff—the aches and pains, the diminishment, the fact that. When I, you know, I'm less respected in certain places than I used to be, and less vital, um, is actually is actually like rubbing my nose in. Here's where you still have developmental work to do. That maybe, you know, it's not even the work of eldering. It might just be the work of adulting. <laughs> like, like well, you know, this, in this your, is your in chance. In your
1: fifties, I think in your fifties, that's the case. I think Mm -hmm. that's very much the case. One of the sections of the book is about emotional repair. So what is it we need developmentally in our 50s or 60s, 70s or 80s, doesn't matter which decade, now is the time. Now is the time to do emotional repair. Look at our traumas. What do we need to do about those parts of ourselves? Look at our relationships our spouses and family and friends? Do we need to give and receive forgiveness? Because that's part of becoming an adult or an elder. Do we need, is there something we need to say or do that if it's left undone will lead to regret on our deathbed, will lead to the feeling that we didn't complete our lives? And so my sense is that, you know, I call it, I call midlife the heroic period because we're empire building. We're building foundations financially and emotionally families and businesses. And that's the creation of adulthood. Many people don't do that emotionally as you're pointing out, even though it looks like they're doing it on the outside. Emotionally, they're not completing that work. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the next stage of moving into elderhood is not about ego and empire anymore. It's about letting go of the ego's agenda and letting go of the outworn identities that carried us through the earlier cycle. And moving into a deeper self-awareness. And every spiritual tradition all over the world teaches this. That the last stage of life is about contemplation. And service. You know, so I am constantly teaching online. Building conferences. Workshops. Because I feel that this work is touching people and it's my gift. But I'm not doing it in the same way that I was doing it in my forties. It doesn't feel the same. It's not, I don't feel like my ego has the same concerns as trying to run the show. Mm. I feel a lot of freedom inside and a lot of gratitude because I've let go of so much from doing this inner work. And I can just be present now and give, make my contributions and give my gifts. And I'm fortunate that way. I'm very fortunate that way. Some people don't have the financial circumstances where they can do that. But what they can do, even if they continue to work for paid, um, for money, what they can do is the inner work as they're at their jobs and reorient to doing it differently. And I talk about that in the book because retirement, as an example, is very individual. You know, there's no formula where we where I would ever say to someone, well, you have to do this at this age and that at that age. You know, it's very personal. But anyone can do the inner work of age regardless of your circumstances, even regardless of your health. And in the chapter on illness and caregiving, I write about how I was doing this with several friends who were extremely ill. And then in the section on death with my friend who died. I had several friends actually die while I was writing the book. And I realized that mortality awareness is so key to becoming an elder because that's another thing that's in the shadow in our culture. Mm -hmm. It changed a bit with COVID. With COVID, there was this awareness of death all around us that had never ever happened before in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so there had been a lot of denial and a lot of, um, and it it goes with this attachment to youth. I'm never going to die. You know, this feeling of immortality, which is not becoming an adult, by the way, that feeling of immortality, like Peter Pan, So with COVID, something shifted, but I'm noticing as I listen to people and COVID um, begins to resolve, that people are going back into denial of death. Mm. And that's Mm. the brain wiring, you know, back to the brain. That's a wiring thing, that's a default network. So, Mm. So, you know, I would say mortality awareness is really a key for this stage of life. And it has this alchemical effect. You realize you have so little time left compared to what you've already lived that it helps you really reprioritize. You know what really yeah. matters now. What's most important?
0: Uh, well, yeah, I was I was listening to Michael Mead, another uh, el- elder whom you you quote, who was talking about COVID actually kind of ripping the cover off of our collective denial of death, like we, with anti-vaxxing and anti-masking and it's a hoax. Like he sees this very mythically as a, a society that can't come to grips with death. So while a lot of people sort of had it, you know, rubbed in our noses um, people for whom it was two or three degrees separated a lot, of a lot of them, you know, it, it, it told on our, terror of mortality.
1: That's right. And the sense of, um, I'm different. It won't happen to me. The sense of specialness, the narcissism. So, you know, Michael, I interviewed Michael in the book. Um, There are interviews with Ken Wilber and Krishna Das and several Jungian analysts And uh, Father Thomas Keating, it turned out to be right before he died, actually. And um, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. And they they all shared with me their own experience of aging as spiritual practice. What kind of practices are they doing now? And what is their attitude toward their aging bodies? And it was very revealing and very meaningful to do these interviews.
0: Yeah. So a couple of things that I kind of want to, I don't, I'm not gonna say push back on, but maybe a little. <laughs> so uh-huh. um, one is we talk you talked about like the, the heroic period of life is empire building. And, you know, I see the heroic empire building impulses of my peers you know, I'm sort of tail end of Gen X. I'm one I'm one year away from officially being a boomer, which I've always felt very good about. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, um, but you know, the the quest for empire, it feels like it's that's what's like we're destroying our world through that. So I'm wondering how normal that is, and thinking about, you know, like other cultures, um, being indigenous cultures where there is a tribe or a community of checks and balances of that, that kind of enable a healthy life cycle. What you know what? Like it feels like even our even our adulthood is pathological in this culture. And I'm wondering what, what you think, like a, a, a heroic um, striving would look like in a healthy world.
1: So this is a really good point because it shows the interconnectedness of our psychology and the values we're taught with the crises that we're undergoing collectively. And you could see that, you know, in the past 10 days out of Sharm el-Sheikh, where the uh, COP27, the whole world was gathering to try to work on the climate crisis. You could see that um, the miscommunication, the inability to accommodate to be flexible to think globally rather than nationally um so you could see a lot of this psychology you're describing and and the inability to let go of the empire building right the the developing nations want to build empire just like the post-industrial nations Mm. so you know as individuals we in 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 the West, in postmodern culture in the West, for boomers, and this maybe maybe isn't so true for Gen Z anymore, but for boomers, um, we were taught individuality, autonomy, separateness, um, take care of ourselves, you know, build a foundation for the future, and That's what I mean by the hero's journey. So if you look at Joseph Campbell's template for the hero or the heroine and the story that's lived out, what you see is after all the ordeals and the meetings with remarkable people and the tasks completed, the hero returns to the community. And I like to think of that as the elder, After that journey of accomplishment the hero returns as the elder and becomes the mentor for the next generation of heroes. But you're making this profound point that what we have considered heroic can now be seen as really destructive lifestyle, destructive values, consumerism, materialism, extraction of resources, and so on. So Their story needs to change. It needs to change. And there are many, many people talking and writing about a new story for humanity from, you know, through different lenses, through different points of view. And the younger generations are, most of the kids know that. They know that they're not going to, um, that they may not have the kind of wealth and financial stability of older generations that they don't really want to work on careers that are destructive to the planet. And so it's a changing story. It isn't clear yet what's going to emerge.
0: Mm. And you know the other thing I was thinking is you know you you talk you know lovingly about you know the 60s and 70s and the rock music you love and you you know you're clearly in the boomer generation and you know there's there's something like to me being on the cusp of it, um, like deeply unsettling about the, the whole boomer <laughs> experience. And so it's like now it's almost like, you know, your generation has been solipsistic the entire time. And so now you're talking about aging because you're there. And <laughs> I don't know. There, there was, there was, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of shadow that was coming out in me <laughs> just, you know, because. Your perspective in the book, you don't have any villains. You don't blame anyone. You acknowledge that great harms are committed by gurus and leaders and popular figures. And yet you have a very, you know, Jungian or generous (laughs) depth perspective that, you know, we're all human. And, you know, I could feel in myself like the narcissism of like judgment of, um of a lot of the, the things you're talking about and I, I don't i don't actually know what my what my question is, but maybe i 'll just toss it to you to to reflect back a little bit
1: well, each generation has its own cultural moment, you know, so the boomers were born after World War two in a time of of economic growth um I spent. Decades feeling that I never had to worry about money. Not that mm. I was going to inherit it, but that but that, that it was safe. The culture felt safe.
0: Mm.
1: Um, I knew there were environmental problems, but I didn't take that on. I was more involved with racism and sexism in my university days. Um I think there were a lot of boomers who were very socially engaged and really built socially conscious businesses and tried to contribute to redirecting capitalism away from destruction. There were many, many people in my generation who tried to do that. And there were many who were asleep, totally asleep and lived, you know, selfish lives. No doubt about it, and so my, my view is very developmental coming from psychology mm. that there are many stages of awareness within the human species. There are people who are very primitive, people who are very spiritually advanced, and then many levels in between. So from that point of view, you can't sort of look at a generation of 70 million people and say they're all the same. That's a stereotype, Mm. right? Um, When I speak to the kids now, and I do that a lot in the context of the climate crisis, they have a very different outlook. A lot of them are pessimistic and angry and depressed. Um, they're also activists, and they're using that activism as an antidote, you know, to their negative emotions, and I love that, um, and I see myself in them, and the way that I was fighting for civil rights in my own youth, in my own 20s, so, um... It's, it's a complicated question, and, you know, this sort of okay boomer stereotype, negative projection mm. just rolls off my back.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, and as I said, I can feel, you know, I, I know enough about myself to know that my criticisms and judgments are projections yeah. as well. So, you know, people like yeah. you have helped me to you know sort of hold them more lightly I still you know so f- feel them coming up and and I think you know, I I have two Gen Z adult children who are exactly as you say can't see a future they're both artists can't see a future in which their gifts will be rewarded with with the opportunity to be independent and to to share of themselves freely um, and I don't, I don't have answers. I don't you know.
1: Well, I hope they find their way. I think that um, you know, even though we're in these massive interconnected crises, as individuals, we still want meaningful lives. That's why the last section of the book is a letter to the grandchildren. And I wrote it with my own grandchildren in mind, but it's really for any young people. And um, you know, it's really important to, in on one level, to follow your passion, but on another level, to be practical. And I think that's part of what it means to become an adult. Mm to find a way to take care of yourself and make your own resources and, and um, separate from the family. I know there are a lot of kids living at home, adult kids now, but you know, in terms of developmental psychology, separation and individuation from the family is a really important step. Yeah. And some people lost that with COVID and, you know, some people for other reasons, financial reasons or emotional reasons, are at home. But my, you know, my advice so tomorrow, I do you know Humanity Rising? It's a big global platform. No. That goes out to 130 countries. And um, they've been doing daily broadcasts. I think they're like yours, there are probably 600 broadcasts now, something like that, and they're all on YouTube. And they're fantastic because they're they're tuned in to people around the world who are really doing fantastic things, who are innovative and committed and curious. And um, the last two weeks have all been on climate as the um, meeting in Egypt has been going on. And I organized the one for tomorrow, And it's all about psychology and climate. How do we talk to teenagers about this? How do we um, understand the youth that are so depressed and scared about this? How do we use mindfulness practice for climate anxiety? Mm. So those are the speakers that I'm going to be hosting tomorrow on Humanity Rising. And, you know, that's just my little bit if everybody kind of steps up to do their bit, um, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be able to right the ship. And I think that that, you know, people, there are many people like your adult children who really need to get that. They need to get that their activism is the antidote to their paralysis. And if they can use their art, in some kind of cause that they're passionate about, then those can all come together. I had a, I got an email from a 30-year-old man who read my book, and he said, this will change my life because I'm going to age totally differently. Mm. And that was really touching to me, you know, because I hadn't really thought about young people reading the book. But because we internalize ageism from childhood on, it's actually really important to explore what this means at any age. And that inner ageist that you and I talked about has health consequences for us. So there's a psychologist at Yale University who has done decades of research on how the inner ageist, she calls it something else, how that shadow character affects our cognition in later life, our cardiac health, Mm -hmm. our memories, our emotional health and well-being, and even our longevity. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is an issue for all ages and so is climate change. I think that all the intergenerational work that's going on now is welcoming young people into the climate movement. And that's really exciting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, What what comes to me is, you know, one, one of the fair criticisms that my kids kindly, gently, lovingly level at me is my hypocrisy. Like I talk a very progressive game and yet I live in the suburbs and I drive and I, you know, I'm contributing to the climate crisis in in many, many ways. And it's almost like as I'm listening to you and, and reflecting on the notes that I took of the book, that my kids are dragging me into mortality awareness, that they're more aware of mortality looking at a dying planet from their perspective than I am. Who's like, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s where you know, yeah, we might blow each other up, but still, you know, the suburbs, and you can make a good living as a plumber, and right, like I had some of that same sense of uh, a, a basic okayness to my life, if not the lives of people of different colors and species, you know, races and species, and you know, like in my own bubble, I thought I was I was going to be all right, and like it's my kids who are thinking about mortality. So I don't know if you've seen the, the the movie Don't Look Up. Yeah, sure. Right, that last scene where they're all sitting around the table holding hands, waiting for the world to end. Yeah. And there's, some, there's so, something you know, poignant about that for me. I
1: think that's happening in a lot of families. I recently spoke with Lynn Iser, who's the president of Elders Action Network. And I asked her how she got in. And they have Elders Climate Action and Elders for Democracy. It's a really fabulous group. ECA, um, uh, EAC, Elder. No, what is it? EAN, Elders Action Network. And um, and she said, her daughter, her daughter kept saying to her, "What are you doing for the planet?" And so she's a full-time activist now. Hmm. And she teaches how to align your values with your lifestyle. How to align your moral voice with your actions. And that's something you could talk with your family about and everyone could talk with their families about. How can we reduce our consumption? How can we lighten our footprints? what can we do in our personal world to recycle more or to change our transportation or to change our diet, dietary habits or whatever it is. Um, but I think this bigger issue of the younger generations being anxious and depressed is, is really, um, it's a big issue. And um, on the broadcast tomorrow, I'm going to have a woman in the UK who interviewed 10,000 youth globally about this issue. Hmm. So, so there's work being done on it. Um, I don't think anybody has answers. Again, I think it's very individual because, we, we, you know, saying youth is like saying boomers. It's tens of millions of people as individuals, right? So um, our language, we have to watch our language. Be careful that we're not projecting.
0: Mm, right. um, so we talked about the shadow. We talked a little bit about mortality awareness. You also talk about one, one of the portals to move from ego to elder is what you call pure awareness. And you know, for meditation, which you talk about a lot at the beginning of the book, and now at the part where I'm at now, you're like, you know, meditation doesn't just have to be Sitting in lotus position, that there, there, are, you know, many other forms. It, you know, it feels like, like like the central theme of your book. I'm coming to over and over again is like both and, like we have, like life is about embracing paradox and seeing the end of life. Really gives us a push to do that. Um, and how, so, how does pure awareness? Maybe first of all, I talk about like what you mean by that. And then what's what's its role in helping us embrace the paradox of we're alive, we like life, we want to stay alive, and we know it's not going to last forever?
1: So I mentioned that all the religious and spiritual traditions teach that this stage of life is about contemplation and spiritual practice. How can we use the conditions of our aging for spiritual practice? That's really my question. Mm. How can we use the conditions of our aging for spiritual practice? So a part of that is this shift in identity from role, what we do, to soul, who we really are from what we do to who we really are. But how do we make that shift? Every tradition and all the lineages and all the traditions have different practices for that. All of them do. Um, The organized religions don't tend to teach those practices, but the mystical traditions do, and we live in a time when that's all out in the open. It used to be secretive, Mm. esoteric used to be esoteric, only for the trained people. It's all been democratized now. So if you feel aligned with a particular tradition, whatever it is, you can find practices to cultivate pure awareness, to cultivate transcendence, silence, Buddha mind, vastness, whatever you want to call it, turiya, Um, Whatever tradition you come from, it it has a different name, but it basically means beyond thought, silent mind beyond thought. And if you can begin to cultivate that with practices and sit in that silent vastness of pure awareness every day, your relationship to your mind and to your identity will begin to change. And that's the purpose of those practices. And, you know, in psychological language, we would say it connects us to something beyond ego. Something larger than the ego. Um, Jung spoke about the shift from ego to self with a capital S. But it's that transpersonal center in every one of us that's the essence of who we are. And, you know, Roll to Soul is, was coined by Ramdas, spiritual teacher Ramdas. I borrowed it from him because I thought that it just said intuitively what I was trying to say. But there are many different ways to say that, and you can find your own language to, for it based on your affinity to a practice. And so in the book, I offer many practices for beginners and for more advanced meditators to begin to discover how to sit in pure awareness every day. Um, I started meditating at 19, 53 years ago. And I've missed, I don't know, maybe two days in 53 years. So for me, this is a really habitual commitment that i took on a long time Mm. ago and i feel so lucky that that happened um i feel grounded in that silent awareness and it's a refuge from the noise in the news and the noise in the home and the noise in my mind it's a refuge i can go to any time so that's what I mean by that. And for me to become an elder, pure awareness, mortality awareness, and shadow awareness are three portals, three openings, to move your stage of development um, into elderhood.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I know my, my, my wife was much more advanced than I am on this front. Talks about her body like, you know, it's a piece of clothing. Right? Like, it's something it's so, like, I wouldn't, you know, in fact, I'm wearing today almost, I don't know if you can see it, a, a shirt that has so many holes in it that my wife actually mended it with this, this uh, method that I find quite beautiful. With, uh, with you know, I don't exactly know what, but it's, you know, it's got all these beautiful patterns in it, pretty, you know, re- reminding me of the, the, the Sufi tale you share. In the in the book about the cracked uh, water pot um, that that cultivating pure awareness helps us realize that we the thing we're so attached to isn't us and you have all these different mantras that you offer like I am not this I'm pure awareness I'm not my body I'm pure awareness I'm not my thoughts I'm pure awareness I'm not my emotions I'm not my relationships um, and it seems like like aging, is a kind of catalyst for, because for, I've been meditating for a long time, but I don't, I don't really believe that. Because right? <laughs> I know that this body, this hand is like, it's me. And pure awareness uh-huh. has been for me pretty much a theory. And uh-huh. I'm really looking forward to the invitation that you share in the book of saying like, you know what, this is going to quicken. Like you can keep doing it and the balance might shift a little.
1: Or you may need another practice. You may need a different practice if you're not feeling fulfilled with what you've been doing,
0: mm. you know,
1: you might explore a little bit. Yeah. So the I am not this and I am not that um, is a practice that comes from India. And um, I'm rooted in Vedanta, in the Vedanta tradition. And it's a very powerful practice of enhancing non-attachment to your body, your mind, and your story. Because you're not your story either. And, you know, deepening into who we really are. And for me, that's what this time of life is about. And age is our curriculum. It's our, it gives us every opportunity to do that. As we let go and let go and let go of more and more.
0: Hmm. Cool. Let's. <laughs> so this
1: was a wonderful conversation. Howie. Yeah. I thank really you so much. Uh,
0: yeah. I want. I, lo- I want to like let those words land. I think it's a per- perfect place to end. Except, can you tell people where to find out more about you if they if they want yeah, to? Yeah. People
1: can go to Connie'swag.com. If you're interested in reading The Inner Work of Age in community and doing the practices with other people in free online Zoom groups, you can shoot me an email, ConnieZweig, Z-W-E-I-G, at gmail.com. Put Wisdom Circle in the subject line, and I will connect you. I just formed two groups yesterday. Um, I'll connect you with other people and you can age in community. These groups have, some of them have been going for more than a year now. People have become intimate friends mm. and um, it's a way to explore this with others. Wow.
0: Well, thank you so much. I'm, you know, the book I, I'm, it is already changing my trajectory. Um, it feels sort of lighter, more joyful, more hopeful, a little more scary, I hear um, you. but I'm so glad that, uh, you know, life and serendipity put you in front of me and I Thank so you, appreciate Heidi. the work. I'm going to, you know, work backwards to, to some of your other books and so grateful for, for your agreeing to, to speak to me and to, to share your wisdom with us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your presence.
0: All right. Take care. All right. Let's see. Garden news. Nothing's happened in the garden except the row covers are on and it's been cold and been sort eating some of the stuff that we brought in, the um, sweet potatoes and winter squash. Um, what else? Movement news. Not been a ton. I have been under the weather since Saturday. Actually, Saturday morning, I didn't feel so great, but I told myself that I should ignore that because I wanted to go play Ultimate. And then I came back and kind of got a little bit sick. Other people have been sniffly or sick around the house. Um, Not COVID, according to our still unexpired tests, but whatever, whatever else is going around. So I've been taking it easy Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Berenst, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chali, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coppola, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Anne Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Lennon, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Carts, Deanne Bishop, Bill elf Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett. Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.